Bow with me in prayer, if you would. Father, we come to you now, this morning, this first day of the week, asking you to impress upon us the truth of your Son, Jesus Christ. Father, there's no more important moment in a seven-day week than when we gather in a moment like this and stand under and submit to the authority of you in your word as it's been given to us. Father, my entire week has been glancing to this moment as I've studied your scriptures and prepared to proclaim the truth of Jesus Christ to these people. Father, there are those in this room that cast an eye towards Sunday morning throughout the week as they worked and lived and related to people in their lives. And you have been faithful now to assemble us in such a moment. Lord, I'm aware that there are people in this room that do not even understand how this moment this morning is the most significant time on our calendars and on our clocks in any given week. And so I pray, Father, that you would impress upon our hearts this reality that this is the most supreme moment of our week when we come to you with your word, hearts full of prayer and questions, seeking that greatest desire that all humanity seeks, and that's peace with you. Father, would you provide that now through the preaching of this text? And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. It's good to be back with you this morning. I ask you to turn back again to the book of John. This time we're going to be towards the end of the book in chapter 20. If you didn't bring a Bible with you and you take one of those Bibles out of the rack below you in the seat in front of you, I think you could turn to page 906 and you'll be at the text that I will be preaching from this morning. It's John chapter 20 and we will be looking at verses 19 through the end of the chapter, uh, verse 31. So John chapter 20, 19 through 20, 31. Let me take you to the scene that we're going to be introduced to here in the text. It's the night of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's a Sunday night. The apostles, the disciples have gathered for the first time since they've been scattered into the night on a Friday night. And boy, have they had quite a week. They've had a seven-day period that was by... The, the mildest of descriptions, extreme. Extreme emotions, extreme events have happened in the course of these last seven days. And quite honestly, these disciples' heads are spinning, their hearts are broken, and they are wondering what's going to happen next. They've come together again since they parted each other's company on Friday night. Last week in their lives, looks like this. A week ago on Sunday, their Jesus rode into Jerusalem on a donkey's colt, being hailed as the king of Israel. Palm branches everywhere, crowds worshiping the coming of this one named Jesus. It was a celebration on Palm Sunday. Three nights ago was the last supper in the lives of these disciples. Jesus says some strange things in this meeting, two of which are this. Number one, I won't eat and drink of the vine again until the kingdom of heaven is fulfilled. What in the world does this mean? But even more strange than that, Jesus dips a morsel into the wine and hands it to Judas and says, what you must do, go and do now. And Judas mysteriously gets up. The disciples have no understanding of what's going on, and he vanishes into the dark of night. Scripture tells us they didn't know what he was going to do. They thought perhaps he was going to go get some money to pay for the meal and the housing. They had just that night also witnessed Jesus' prayer and what a prayer that was in John chapter 17. The Son of God praying to the Father in profound ways. But specifically in verses 12 through 17, these disciples witnessed Jesus praying to the Father for them. And he says, I have kept all of them except for the son of destruction, who is Judas. And I ask you, Father, to keep them. I'm paraphrasing. 
I'm not taking them out of the world. I'm sending them into the world, but I don't want them to be of the world. Protect them, Father. Keep them in your truth. Your word is truth. These disciples witnessed Jesus praying to the Father for them. And then they, they witness the unthinkable. In that same garden, after Jesus has put an amen to that prayer, they witness Judas betray Jesus with a kiss. They witness Jesus being arrested by soldiers. They witness Peter, one of their own, striking one of those shoulders with its soldiers with his sword and removing his ear. And then they see Jesus pick that ear up and put it back on that soldier and heal him. Malchus was his name, Scripture tells us. It was a wild night. And then what Jesus told them would happen, happened. They scattered into the dark of the night in all kinds of directions. For they did not want to be treated as their Lord and Savior, their Messiah, Jesus, had been treated. And Jesus literally predicted that they would scatter when the shepherd was struck into the night. Now, in the text that we come to this morning, they are gathered together again. But it's dark. It's a secret place. The doors are locked. The windows are shuttered. And the scene is one of fear. It's one of grief and mourning. And that's where John takes us in chapter 20, verse 19. Read with me. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side and then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them, and he said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. As we get this scene established from John, who is narrating a true historical event that happened some 2,000 years ago, this is not a parable, a fable, a story, this is history. As John unfolds that, I want to take you to verse 24 immediately, and, and show you that he zooms in on Thomas. There's much to be said. We'll come back to some of the text above this verse 24. But he zooms in on Thomas and is going to teach us something about Thomas. And in so teaching us about Thomas, I'm going to tell you this morning, he's going to teach us something about ourselves. And more importantly, he's going to teach us something about God. So he zooms in to teach us something about Thomas. Let me give you a brief biography of Thomas. And it's brief because scripture doesn't give us a lot about Thomas. He's only mentioned in the apostles, in John's gospel. He's only mentioned and it's three times, one of which we're in right now. But let me show you other two moments. Thomas, you see, is one of the 12 disciples who was known as the twin. And by the way, scripture never tells us who the other twin is. All we know of him comes from this gospel, and what we learn from John's writings is uh, that Thomas has extreme love and an extreme commitment to Jesus Christ. It's really beautiful. Let me show you, first of all, his love and his commitment and the boldness that he beholds his Christ. If you turn back to John chapter 11, starting in verse 7, you're going to see Thomas's bold commitment to Jesus Christ born out of his love. There, Jesus is conversing with his disciples, and he said to his disciples, let us go to Judea again. 
It's a dangerous place, as you will see. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you. Are you going to go there again? Jesus, no, 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 no. We left there for a reason. Death was knocking on the door of, for us and you. But look at verse 16 of John 11. Thomas called the twin, here we go again, called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, let us go also that we may die with him. <laughs> Only one of the 12 says this to Jesus. The others say, Jesus, that's not wise. Death waits for you there. Thomas says, hey, 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 let's go, fellas, with him, and let's go die with him there. I take from this that, that Thomas did not want to live without Jesus, so much so that he was willing to go to Judea with him and die with him. He did not want to live without Jesus. Now hold that thought, okay? We're going to come back to that. Hold that thought. Let me show you another instance in John's gospel of Thomas's love and commitment to Jesus Christ. But this time, I'm not going to show you that it is bold. I just did that, and it's true that it's bold. But now I want to show you that it's worrisome. It's riddled with anxiety in some sense. John chapter 14, just a few pages back to your left, verses 1 through 6. Jesus speaking in the upper room. This is the night of the Lord's Supper. It's after the Lord's Supper. He says, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may also be. And you know the way to where I'm going. Okay, let's pause for a moment. Jesus is telling them he's going to go away and prepare a place for them and come back and get them, or that they know the way to get to him. Verse 5, Thomas said to him, Lord... <laughs> Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? You hear the anxiety? Lord, don't separate from us without giving us a map. We need to be with you. We need to know how it is that we can reunite with you. Verse 6, Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So Thomas doesn't want to be separated from Jesus. First he says, guys, let's go to Judea and we will die with him because it's better to be dead with him than alive without him. And here he says, Jesus, we need to know how to get back to you because we do not want to exist separated from you. He had separation anxiety. So his love for Jesus was worrisome, and his love for Jesus was bold. He doesn't want to be separated from Jesus. Hang on to that thought, too. I'll come back to that in just a moment. So from these two views into Thomas's heart, we can see a devout follower of Jesus Christ. We can see a man that is all in, a believer, a follower, a disciple. But then we read this. Let's go back to John chapter 20, picking up again in verse 24. Then we read this. Now Thomas, one of the twelve called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. Does that sound familiar for those of you who were here last week? John the Baptist, behold the Lamb of God. Andrew runs to his brother Simon, we have found the Messiah. Philip runs to Nathaniel, we have found him of whom Moses and the law and also the prophets wrote. And now the ten or so disciples run to Thomas and say, we have seen the Lord. All of these phrases 
are the greatest words ever uttered by the human vocal cords. We have seen the Lord. Come on, Thomas. But look what he says, second part of verse 25. But he said to them, Unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails, and place my finger into the mark of the nails, and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. His worst fear had come true. His love and his commitment to Jesus was bold. It was anxious. And his worst fear has come true. Jesus has died and Thomas lives without him. Or so he thought. <laughs> or so he thought. we continue. I'm going to ask the question now, why did Thomas doubt the resurrection of Jesus? Why? I don't want us to be too hard on Thomas because I think there's a whole bunch of Thomas inside of every one of us. We need to understand why Thomas doubted the resurrection of Jesus. And by the way, Thomas was not alone on this occasion of doubting and not understanding that Jesus would rise from the grave on the third day. He had quite a crowd that he was assembled with that believed like this. Some of Jesus' disciples were downcast and bewildered on the road to Emmaus. Remember Luke chapter 24, verses 13 and following? We've got two guys walking to the road to Emmaus. They're kicking a can down the road. They're distraught. They're despondent. Our Messiah is dead. We thought we had him, but we didn't. And Jesus, much like in this room where he just appears, he appears with these two disciples and starts talking with them. And to get to the chase, Jesus, in verse 27 of Luke 24, explains to them, Luke tells us, explains to them in all of the Old Testament, my paraphrase here, the things pertaining to himself. He took the books that Moses wrote. He took the writings of Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel. And he said, this is all about me. And we know from the account in Luke that when Jesus parted from these two, they were astonished because they finally realized he's resurrected. Did our hearts not burn when he spoke? John tells us that he himself did not understand that Jesus would rise from the grave on the third day. Look over in chapter 20 and verse 1. Don't turn the page. It's just right there with you. In verse 1, we read now on the first day of the week. So again, it's a Sunday morning. This is why, by the way, we've gathered on a Sunday here. We gather on the resurrection day, the first day of the week. Here Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. And so she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, quick insert, that's John who wrote this book, and said to them, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter. Don't you love that? He's got a foot race here. And John humbly says, I beat him. Outran Peter to the, and reached the tomb first, and stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came following him and went into the tomb, and he saw the linen cloths lying there. Real quick, we see personalities here, don't we? We've got an athlete, John, winning the race, but he pauses. Oh man, am I going to go in there? What am I going to see? And Peter just barrels right on past him. He's late to the grave, but he's first inside. And he goes right in because he's got to see what's going on here. Love to look into those, but we don't have time. He saw the linen cloth lying there and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloth, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple, John, then the other disciple who had reached the tomb first, also went in, and he saw and believed. We'll circle that in your Bibles. 
he saw and he believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. And then the disciples went back to their homes. John acknowledges that on the resurrection morning, even he, as well as his fellow disciples, did not understand the scripture. And the scripture by this time is what Moses wrote in the law and the prophets wrote. And by the way, the scripture is what Jesus had taught them. And they didn't understand it until John runs down into that tomb and sees and believes. So he doubted as well. And now, in verse 10, the disciples went back to their homes. And we pick up in chapter 20, verse 19. They're huddled up in a room in fear on the resurrection Sunday night. Many think they returned to the upper room where the Lord's Supper took place. Don't know that to be true, but it's a good theory. They're huddled up, doors locked, windows closed, lights out, and it's quiet. And I think the silence perhaps is broken every now and then by weeping and fear. You know, on the one hand, we can certainly understand why Thomas and the other disciples doubted. I mean, they had no category for what just happened in the last seven days. Triumphal entry, buried in the tomb, rested in the garden, crucified on the cross, buried in a tomb. They, they had no preparation for such extreme moments like that. And on top of that, this is their Messiah who has been crucified on a Roman cross. The most brutal, disgusting, absurd treatment of a human being known to mankind at that time. And they saw this unfold. I mean, if we're with them in that moment, hey, messiahs win. They don't lose. <laughs> they win. They don't die the most disgraceful death known to mankind we must have missed it here we didn't listen rightly we didn't get it it's what the two disciples on the road to Emmaus said it's what the 11 said Judas obviously missed it on the other hand so there is I, we can understand why they're so struck with despair this is the Messiah and he's dead on a cross but on the other hand how could they not have been ready for this resurrection? How could they have missed this? They had all sat under the teaching of Jesus and they had witnessed all of his miracles. In fact, they heard him foretell of the greatest miracle that he would ever be a part of and that's his resurrection from the dead. He has told them about this day. In fact, he told them three times. You guys have been in the book of Mark, right? What chapter are you at now? Have you finished it? Where, where are you? Twelve. I'm not going to steal your thunder. You, as a church, have been through the book of Mark, chapters 8, 9, and 10. And we need to look back into those verses real quickly. They heard Jesus foretell of the resurrection three times in these three chapters. Mark 8, verse 31 Jesus began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. Jesus said this to the twelve. And I love verse 32. And he said this plainly. <laughs> Come on, guys. How many times? Once ought to be enough. This is Jesus the Messiah speaking. He said it plainly. But they didn't get it. So we go one chapter later. Mark chapter 9. Again in verse 31. I love how these are bundled together quick in our numbering system. For Jesus was teaching his disciples saying to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days, he will rise. But they did not 
understand the saying and were afraid to ask him. Mm. Mm. So we go to round three, Mark chapter 10, verse 32. And taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what was to happen to him, saying, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. This is graphic. Jesus isn't pulling any punches. And then he says, and after three days he will rise. Three times. You know, normally when things happen three times in the Bible, good things happen. But these guys, these guys don't get it. They have eyes, but they don't see. They have ears, but they don't hear. They have hearts, but it doesn't penetrate. It is here that we begin to see the urgent need and have this great appreciation for our need of the Holy Spirit. Let me back up now right quick. John chapter 20, back in uh, verse 21. He says, as he's appeared in this room, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. It's a sermon in and of itself, but I'm going to give you a snippet of that sermon right here. What is going on with Jesus breathing on them the Holy Spirit and calling them to receive the Holy Spirit? It's one of the most mysterious verses in all of the Bible. There's a lot of mysterious verses, by the way. And what, by the way, what do we do with mysterious verses? We don't just punt and move on. We need to stop there, and we need to linger, and we need to consider what's going on here instead of just saying, I'm going to be ignorant on the matter, and I'm going to move on. So we consult others. We don't try to figure these things out on our own. You've got a pastor in Adam who's trained and studied. You could ask him. And I'm going to tell you what Adam's going to do. He's going to do what I did. We're going to consult other reputable, conservative, biblically-based believers to see what we collectively might do with a verse like this. So I consulted a guy named Andreas Kostenberger. He wrote a commentary on John, and it's fabulous, and it's faithful to the Word of God. I consulted Steve Wellam, my professor at Southern Seminary, who preaches and teaches on the person and work of Christ. He's an expert when it comes to studying the life and work of Jesus Christ. What would we do with this, Dr. Wellam? And then to polish it all up a little bit, I've got guys like John MacArthur. What does John MacArthur do with a passage like this? And my other guy's John Piper. And when you bundle all those together, I'll portray to you what I embrace according to their thinking and teaching as well. And that is that Jesus here is acting out a type of parable that's pointing forward to Pentecost in the book of Acts. And he's breathing on them the Holy Spirit and it's a foreshadowing of the day when the Holy Spirit will be given to them on Pentecost. But before Pentecost can come, Jesus, resurrected that he is, needs to ascend to the Father so that he can send the Helper, the Holy Spirit. So this is a foreshadowing. It's almost like the handing of a baton. It's a gradual process. And let me just pause for a moment and tell you how good we have it compared to these disciples. We've got it really good, y'all. Many look at the disciples and say, man, how in the world could they be so messed up? They walked and talked and ate with Jesus. They prayed with Jesus. They witnessed him relating to the Father in prayer. But it's as the angel told Joseph when he was told your wife's going to, or your soon-to-be wife is going to have a baby, and you're going to call him what? Emmanuel. And Matthew puts in parentheses, which means, what is it? 
God with us. That's pretty good, isn't it? So these disciples live and eat and pray and and heal with Jesus, God with us. And yet they don't get that God with us needs to die, be buried, and rise again. Why? Because they need, and this is me now, this is how I look at this matter in Scripture, they need the Holy Spirit, God in us. And there is a difference. Jesus says in that upper room, it's better that I go and I will send the helper. He says that will be better for you disciples. And so here he's breathing on them saying, receive the Holy Spirit. It's foreshadowing Pentecost when they will be indwelt with the Holy Spirit. And have you seen what these disciples do after Pentecost? Have you seen them roar the gospel of Jesus Christ in the book of Acts to all kinds of audiences? Have you seen them boldly go before kings and magistrates and Jews and Gentiles? Have you seen them be imprisoned? Have you seen from legend how they have died in their own evangelistic work for Jesus Christ? What happened? What happened is they were indwelt with the Holy Spirit. And here Jesus says, you need help, brothers. Receive the Holy Spirit. I'm going to send you out with power that you don't have. But it's got to be after Jesus ascends. And by the way, just a quick aside, I'm going to leave that text and that part of the text in just a moment. This is why we are Trinitarian Christians. We believe in a Father, a Son, and a Holy Spirit. And they all are equal, but they are unique in working about God's created order, his salvation, and his his sustaining of his people for all of eternity. Father sends the Son. Son dies, ascends, sends the Spirit. Spirit only speaks what the Son said. Son only does what the Father commands. We are Trinitarian. Our God is one in three persons. And right here we see the, the God the Son and God the Holy Spirit. Vital to salvation and eternal life. We can't be without one or the other. Well, let me move on here. I want to ask a question. How important is the resurrection to the Christian faith? I see heads nodding. Yeah, it's, it's critical, right? But let's really look at how vital this truth of a bodily resurrected Jesus Christ is to our proclamation of faith in the one triune God. Well, we read a, a scripture as a part of our worship service up to this point in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. The resurrection of our crucified Christ is ultimate to Christianity. Ultimate. Not important. Ultimate. If we've got a dead Jesus, we're in trouble. Listen to Paul, 1 Corinthians 15. I'm going to start in verse 3. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep, some have died. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. In an upper room in John chapter 20, verse 19. Paul goes on, verse 12 of 1 Corinthians 15. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead... How can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. And you are still in your sins. Behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. 
Lamb of God's got to rise from the dead for that to be true. If in Christ we hope in this life only, we are, of all people, most to be pitied. You should scoff at us if there's no resurrection of Jesus Christ on the third day from the dead. We are to be pitied. But I'm here to tell you, 2,000 almost years after it happened, it happened. And John is telling us it happened. And in a minute, Thomas is going to realize it happened. This is what is at stake in Thomas's heart when he says, until I see him and until I touch him, I won't believe. He feels the weight of what Paul has said to us. If there's no resurrection from the dead, we're still in our sins. We're in trouble. He feels that his faith is futile. He thinks he's still in his sins. He feels like one who should be most pitied for believing in the full messiahship of Jesus Christ. He's in a crisis, isn't he? And to top it all off, as I said earlier, he loved Jesus deeply. He's got that human element going as well. Despair is set in. You know, the proof of Thomas's love for Jesus is found in the depth of his despair that Jesus is dead and not yet realizing his resurrection. Let's don't be hard on Thomas. I think we would be right there with him. And again, he needs the Holy Spirit. God, the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, dwelling within him. He's desperate for this spirit. Make no mistake about it. We have all put our faith and hope in the true bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ. If you're a believer in this room, you have staked that claim and put that as the exclamation point on your faith. Sure, we believe that he died on the cross for our sins as a substitute. Sure, we believe he was sinless. And it was our sins that he took a beating and a thrashing for. But if that's all he did and he's still in that tomb or his body got robbed from that tomb and dispersed out in some field somewhere, we are in trouble. But no, he rose according to the scriptures on that third day. If you can disprove that, you can disprove Christianity. And I'm here to tell you that for two thousand years people have tried to disprove the resurrection of Jesus Christ and they have failed on every account. Paul in 1 Corinthians lists out more than 500 people that witnessed this and that witness testifies even to this day because it has not been proven that he did not rise from the dead and I'm here to tell you billions with a B of people have believed this truth not just a couple of hundred, <laughs> billions over the course of 2,000 years and presently on this world have believed in this resurrection of Jesus Christ. And I'm here to invite you today to A, re-up in your belief and your affection for this truth of the resurrection, or B, I'm going to ask you today to believe in this for the very first time in your life. And to join a multitude, myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, Revelation says, will believe in this resurrected Jesus Christ. Okay, so there we've looked into Thomas's life and his thinking and his believing or his disbelieving. Now I want to turn and I want to look at Jesus Christ. I want to take our focus to the question of who is Jesus and what is he doing here? So first of all, I want to show you the character of our Jesus in that we see he is one who is full of grace and mercy. Look at we, with me, John 20, starting in 26. Eight days later. So Thomas, seven days ago, I don't believe it. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again. They're huddled up. Now they believe because they encountered the resurrected Jesus, but Thomas wasn't with them. And John tells us this time, Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, again, 
peace be with you. By the way, there's that longing that every human heart has. I want peace. And Jesus, that's what Jesus offers. Peace. He knows exactly what these disciples needed. He knows exactly what Thomas needed. And he knows exactly what you and I need. We need peace. Peace with God. And as a result, peace with one another. But we need peace with God. And so then he said to Thomas, verse 27, here's the grace and mercy of Jesus Christ. Put your finger here and see my hands and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. What a gentle, loving, sovereign, omniscient, gracious God we worship. Jesus pursued Thomas, right? He doesn't scoff at Thomas. He doesn't write Thomas off and say, whatever, you guys, you with me or not? No, he purposely, eight days later, appears in this room again because I'm telling you divinely, he knows Thomas is in the room and Thomas has got a problem. And Jesus doesn't scoff at problems. He solves problems. And his solution to problems is himself. Himself. Not some worldly medication trick. Not psychology here. He himself is the cure to what ails Thomas's disbelief. He comes to Thomas. He pursued Thomas. He wants to help Thomas with his unbelief. Because that's Thomas's biggest problem, man. It's not a body with aches and pains. It's not hunger. It's not a broken up relationship with a brother that's a twin that we don't know about, which I'm not saying is the case. No, his biggest problem is unbelief in God. So he comes to you and me just like this. He's done this when you heard we have found the Lord. You heard that from someone if you're a believer here today. If you're here today and you're not a believer, you've got a room full of people that can say to you, we have seen the Lord. And your biggest problem today is unbelief in this Lord. It's not something that's going on in your life in this world. Your biggest problem, problems that they may be, your biggest problem is unbelief in this resurrected Christ. Week in and week out, you saints gather here and you hear about this resurrected Lord from this pulpit. From this book. This is why I prayed this morning. This is the most important moment of your week. And my week. Is Sunday morning. First day of the week. When we gather to remember the resurrection of Jesus Christ. There is some portion of your heart and my heart. That doubts and strays. We are prone to this. But we have the Holy Spirit. And the word of God to correct us. So he's calling us to embrace him fully as the one who lived and died and rose to live again, according to the scriptures, forever. And this is what we need to have peace. This is why Jesus even says to you and me, peace be with you. I conquered death. I paid for your sins on the cross and rose from the grave and death no longer has its sting. Peace be with you. Your biggest problem, your greatest concern is addressed by me, Jesus the Christ. Well, we've got to look at Thomas's response. This is kind of why we've gathered this morning. We, we've talked about some key truths, but boy, if we don't continue through this text and see Thomas's response, that's a big swing and a miss. So here we go, chapter 20, verse 28. You ready for this? It's short. It's sweet. Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. (laughs) We have found the Messiah. We have seen the Lord. We have found him of whom Moses wrote in the prophets, behold the Lamb of God. You are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. My Lord and my God. All of these phrases that I've just quoted to you 
have got to be uttered by humanity toward God. Thomas's response is ultimate. He couldn't say anything greater than my Lord and my God. It's the greatest thing he possibly could have said. It's not blasphemy, by the way, as many sects would have you to believe. The Jehovah's Witnesses do not believe in the deity of Jesus Christ. And they say right here, oh, he just uttered the Lord's name in vain. He violated the third commandment. Uh Uh-uh. It's not blasphemous. He did not violate the third commandment. You shall not use the Lord's name in vain. This was not in vain. This was worship. This was a prayer. My Lord and my God. That's how we ought to start every single prayer. A-C-T-S. Adoration. That A. My Lord and my God. And right here, Thomas gets it. That disbelief is gone and belief has gripped his heart and he is changed forever. Thomas says, my Lord and my God. It's just like Nathaniel. Remember, Jesus appears in this room on eight days later, just appears in the room. Hey, Thomas, touch my hands. Put your hand in my side. Don't disbelieve, believe. Well, do you remember last week, Jesus sees Nathaniel under the fig tree and he says to Nathaniel, before you came, I saw you under the fig tree. And what did Nathaniel say? You are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. It's the same thing as Thomas saying, my Lord and my God. These are the responses that we, every one of us in this room, are to have to our maker. God, the son, Jesus Christ. Let's chew real quickly on every word of Thomas's declaration. Because every word merits a little bit of understanding. First of all, He says, my Lord and my God. First of all, he says, my. And I just want to urge you to look at the very personal response that Thomas gives to Jesus Christ. He doesn't say, our Lord and our God, because there's a room full of people. He says, my Lord and my God. This is very personal. And these are words that you yourself in your private relationship with Jesus Christ must come to the point of uttering. In belief. There will be time for us together to say, our Lord and our God. That's the church. But the church doesn't start until individuals say, my Lord and my God. It's a very personal response here. There's a one-on-one moment here that is beautiful. We're watching Thomas be saved. The second word, Lord. Okay, this confession is reverent, my Lord. Not friend, my friend, no. Not my brother, no. Seen the bumper sticker, God is my co-pilot. Co-pilot, no. Lord, my Lord. He boldly cites Jesus' Lordship over him, his authority over him. Thomas is subject to this Lord Jesus Christ. And yeah, I'm going to squeeze everything I can out of every word in this verse. Let's look at the conjunction and, A-N-D, okay? What I say there, Thomas does not stop at Lordship. Jesus is much more than Lord. By the way, Lord is a pretty good title to be given to Jesus, right? That's a a big one, right? But he's got this and, and he's going to add to this respect and reverence for Jesus the Lord. He takes a gigantic step beyond Lord. And he says, my God. God. The world is full of lords. The British Parliament's got lords all over the place, right? The world is full of lords. But this is a lord like none other. And just to be certain, 
Thomas chases it with the conjunction and and gets to this title, God. He's talking to Jesus. Dead on the cross, buried in the tomb, resurrected on the third day. God. Trinitarian again, right? This is why we are Trinitarian Christians. The giant word God proclaims out of Thomas's mouth the deity of Jesus the Christ. Takes you back to John chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was what? God. What does John 1.14 say? And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Emmanuel, God with us. So this whole book is proclaiming the deity of Jesus Christ. This whole book is proclaiming the Trinity. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And here Thomas utters, my Lord and my God. This is the pinnacle of the gospel of Jesus Christ. He is God with us. Thomas, no doubt, has recalled all that Jesus has said to affirm these statements, this, this, this utterance, my Lord and my God. This is a summation of all that Jesus has taught them. If we just did a quick survey, and I'm going to do this real, real quick, just do a survey of the book of John and see what Jesus says about his own deity. John chapter 5, verse 19, for whatever the Father does, the Son does likewise. Thomas heard that. Two verses later, John 5, 21, For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to all he will. Boy, he's equating himself with the Father really, really tightly here, isn't he? Is he imitating the Father or is he with the Father? Verse 23 of John 5, Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. John 10, 30, I am. And the Father are one. We're not just pals. We're not tight. We're not just united. We are one. John 14, 1. Believe in God. Believe also in me. That would be blasphemous. If he's not God and he's calling disciples to believe in him, that would be blasphemous. Only God can utter something like that. John 14, 9. Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. Oneness, right? And then the greatest of all, John 8, 58. Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, let me hear it. I am. I am. He took the very name of God from Gen uh, Exodus chapter 3, verse 14. When Moses in a burning bush says, who should I say sent me? And God, the Father, says, you tell them I am sent you. Jesus, the Son, here says, before Abraham, I am. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And all things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. I am. My Lord and my God, says Thomas. Have you uttered those words to Jesus? In belief? In desperation? In joy? In hope? Every one of us has got to, in some way or form, shape or form, utter those words in a prayer to Jesus Christ. Out of belief. Not to get belief, but out of belief. So transforming here, let's look at the transformation here of Thomas. He goes from a doubting pessimist to a roaring evangelist. And that's the path that we are to follow. One more thing about Jesus and then I'll wrap up. Jesus, in this text, also addresses us as he deals with Thomas in his disbelief. And this is how gracious and merciful our Christ is. He's coming after you and me right now 
from the Bible, not from my words, from the words of Scripture. Look at verse 29, John 20. Jesus said to him, Thomas, have you believed because you've seen me? Well, blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Let's be honest here. We have not seen with our eyes the resurrected Christ as the disciples and Thomas did. God did not put us in that moment in history. We see, though, better. (laughs) We see better the resurrected Christ, not with our eyes. These are physical. We see better with spiritual eyes that are out of our heart of belief through the scriptures. We see from scripture that this happened. We see Thomas's response and we now indwelt with the Holy Spirit after Pentecost have the ability to see with our hearts. And that's a better vision. It's a better vision to have this entire Bible written than to just have walked with Jesus without the Holy Spirit. We've got the entire counsel of God's word never to be added to or taken away from. And we've got the Holy Spirit indwelling in us. And the Holy Spirit enables us to know how to handle this book. We're better, the Bible tells us. Is it Hebrews? We're better. We're in a better position. We're not better people. We're in a better position than those who lived during Jesus' day. And it has to do with the full counsel of the word of God and the blessing bestowed on us of the indwelling spirit of God, the Holy Spirit. So this is not to say that those who believe without seeing are better than Thomas. It's not saying that. Jesus glances forward and says that future generations will believe through what the apostles recorded in the Bible. And they will be blessed by the written accounts, and I could add, and the, the uh, accompaniment of the Holy Spirit. So listen, these apostles, these disciples, in John 17, in the garden, after the Lord's Supper, right before he is betrayed by Judas and arrested, they heard Jesus pray this, John 17, 20, Father, I do not ask for these only. These only are the disciples in the midst, right there but also for those who will believe in me through their word. Brothers and sisters that are in this room, we believe in Jesus Christ through the words of the apostle John, through the utterances, the words of the apostle Thomas. Jesus' prayer for us is fulfilled. As we open the scriptures, and that's again why Sunday morning, At 1045, or better said, maybe about 1120, it's the most important moment of your week. Thomas's story was recorded in Scripture so that we might believe without seeing, but seeing. And so just to wrap up the text, look at John 20, verses 30 and 31. John writes, now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. (laughs) But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. Peace be with you, right? And your greatest urge is life with him. And you get it. By reading this book and the accompaniment of the Holy Spirit that would give you eyes to see and believe. Spiritualizes what I'm speaking of. So Thomas is the part of a chain of witnesses that starts with him. It goes to John who wrote it down. It comes to us and it goes to our children and it goes to future generations. And we have evangelism carried out time and time again. Peter, one of those apostles, wrote this briefly. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. It's the longing of every human heart. And so this morning as I conclude, I have prayed all week and I have preached in this moment faithfully as I could, that you would look into the scriptures, 
that you would hear from the Lord God, that the Holy Spirit would impress upon your heart a confirmation that you have not believed in vain or an invitation to you to come and believe in this resurrected Jesus Christ. He is your only hope to all that ails you, all that ails you. You may think that you have messed up beyond repair. You may be ashamed of your unbelief up to this moment. Thomas wasn't. Thomas didn't go, oh, I missed it. Sorry, Jesus. No, he said, my Lord and my God, and he's moved on in belief. You may think it's too late to get serious about the Lord. It's not. So I urge you this morning from deep within your heart to join Thomas in uttering these words to the risen Christ, my Lord and my God, and in so doing, may peace be with you. Let's pray. Father, here we are. We have submitted ourselves to your word. And we ask that you would address our disbelief. Whatever degree of disbelief, minor or major, would you rend it out of our hearts and bless us with peace. Peace that you say surpasses all understanding. We need it. We want it. And we realize this morning we can only get it through trust and faith and belief in Jesus our Lord, in Christ our God. To you be all glory and honor, and to us may it be granted by you belief and faith and trust. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.